Welcome! I'm Roxanne Spring, your personal midwife after hours, celebrating and promoting wisdom and power in pregnancy, birth, and beyond. so delighted. I actually have the honor and privilege to sit here beside Betsy today. And she is a delight. We just met uh, via telephone a couple yes. of days ago, yes. right? Yes. And she has, she has been in the Vancouver area for a long time. And most of her midwifery years were at Peace Health in Vancouver. Right. Today, we're going to have a chance to hear anything and everything that she would like to share with us. I always like to begin with, tell us a little bit about your midwifery journey. How did you learn about it and come to be a midwife? I learned about midwifery in the 60s. And um, before that, before I knew about midwives, my father was a general practitioner in Texas and had his own practice and used to go to the homes to deliver babies back mm. in the 50s, in the 40s, and the 50s. And when I was five or six, I used to go with him sometimes. My dog Martha and I would go with him. So we had opportunity, I had an opportunity to see that childbirth was nothing unusual, and it was usually taking place in the home. We went out a lot to take care of people. He he even um, did health care in the homes for years before he built a clinic there. So that was my first experience with birthing, was that it was a natural process. And um, the only thing I knew were the myths, which I thought were interesting, uh, the women would put axes underneath the bed to cut the pain. That was their pain relief. So, so this was a, 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 in a story in Texas? <laughs> yeah. This that was the women would put an axe under their beds to cut yes. the pain. Oh my and uh, I always thought that was amusing. So <laughs> life would have it. We moved from Texas, ended up in South Carolina. And my dad by then was a radiologist and my mom a nurse, and she was head nurse of OB. Um, I decided kind of a roundabout way to go into nursing in 1964 and um, did a diploma school. I learned about midwives there, but it was always referring to the granny midwife. And um, OB was kind of behind the times in the South during that time, about 10 years behind. We used uh, twilight sleep, scopolamine. They cut episiotomies on everybody. They were amnesic about their experience. And I thought that that was horrible because that's not what I had seen before. But I couldn't quite articulate that. I just knew that if women knew what was going on with their bodies, that maybe they would choose differently. And I was told by the OBGYNs that that was not right, that women wanted to be put out. So you actually <laughs> were exposed to, in real life, these things that I've only heard about. Yes. The twilight yes. sleep and the scopolamine. Right. And, and, and it really was that way. Yeah. Really and during was. nursing school, I learned how to do exams rectally. For, for checking the cervix. For checking the cervix. And I can still conjure that up in my head. But we were not, as nurses, allowed to do exams that vaginally. So I didn't like OB. I 
hated no surprise. it. And midwifery wasn't really in the forefront then as a nurse. Um, so I went into critical care nursing. I worked ICU, open heart, emergency room, did all that. And I'm kind of summarizing years of nursing here and um, worked in Florida and then came to San Francisco. San Francisco is where I thought I had arrived at home mm. because I felt so out of place in the South. And um, San Francisco was it. And this was in the early 70s. So this is just after the flower generation, mm -hmm. but before um, before they kind of closed up Haight-Ashbury area. And I remember um, Gaskins, Anime Gaskins yes. bus coming through San Francisco. You actually saw Ida May. I, I saw Ida May <laughs> with her with her bus and her husband Stephen. Uh, I think it's yes, Stephen. Yes. Yeah. And Stephen. they were going they hadn't arrived at the farm yet. No, they left from they left from San there Francisco and they to went go. to yeah. LA. And um actually at that time it was more of a Stephen project oh, yeah. than it was an Ida May mm -hmm. project. Uh, that came later. Mm -hmm. So I remember her and I remember reading about her after the farm in Tennessee and always wanting to go there but never made it. You haven't visited but there. I haven't been there. Okay. Um, <laughs> so in San Francisco, working ER and working open heart, I decided when um, Grantley Dick Reed wrote mm -hmm. Childbirth Without, Without Fear. Yeah. I, I love the book. I think that there were some issues with the time when I look back that I didn't notice them because it was kind of usual that men were chauvinistic. Chauvinistic. <laughs> Let's just call it out. Uh, yeah. And his book kind of leans that way. But if you kind of pass that by mm -hmm. and get to the heart of it, Fear is everything in childbirth. Well, fear um, is everything nowadays. Anyway. Unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, so much of it has been played upon that. But right. he had wonderful messages to bring. You're right. Wonderful messages. Yes, he did. So I thought I needed to get back into OB. Mm -hmm. uh, I always felt that I had a angel on my shoulders. And I always allowed my inner voice. Mm -hmm. I... It served me well in emergency room nursing. Mm -hmm. um, my inner voice spoke to me a lot about things and actually saved some people during that time. Um, in childbirth, all my years of midwifery, I really connected to my inner self and my intuition. Mm -hmm. And that actually has helped women. Um, the whole idea of a midwife being present, I mean, it's not our show. It's, <laughs> it's not our show. We're there as an assistant. Mm -hmm. And I need to be in the present time. Mm -hmm. And that didn't come home to me quite as well as it did when I was in the hospital setting. Because there's so much noise. There's so much distraction that I needed to be in the present time. And I needed to really work on that. Mm -hmm. And meditation helped me do that. Yes. I've been, I was introduced to meditation in San Francisco. And I used it in my childbirth education classes. I took an independent study to, in the psychology and education of childbirth. Mm -hmm. And then I set up my own classes. So that was my introduction. And I worked with a midwife at the hospital and thought, this is where I want to be. It was kind of like one of the first birthing rooms that had been around. And I had worked in those sterile, um, hard light rooms in the delivery suite as well. And that's not what I wanted to do. So I moved to Northern California, Mendocino County, and became the supervisor of OB then. And we had a birth center that I was very proud of. 
we had, it was in the hospital, and um, we created the rooms so that dads and families could be there. We made a beautiful custom bed that was big enough for two people, mm -hmm. even the family, mm -hmm. and used that. We had music, and that was pretty much unheard of in the 80s. This was in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, and, a well uh, before we got it up here. Yeah. That, you did it at a broad scale. However, yeah. I felt that I needed to birth at home because I was born at home. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was just natural for me. I had no second thoughts about it. And as supervisor of OB, that was unheard of too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a true pioneer woman here. <laughs> the doc, One of the doctors said, why do you want to birth at home? And I said, well... You just answered the question because if you have to ask it, then you won't understand. But I'll tell you, it's a natural setting, and I was born at home, and I have no fear of it. And at the time, I was 38, so they thought I was high risk, mm -hmm. which was not really true. <laughs> I mean, statistically, maybe. But I was a healthy 38-year-old, and like I said, there was no fear. It was not even a question in my head whether I'd birth at a hospital. So I went home. I had my daughter, six and a half hours, an hour of hard labor, and she was born. And um, it was a beautiful experience. So I wanted that for other people, too. Yeah. So I worked in nursing for a few more years. Then I came to... Um, Vancouver. And I worked at the hospital for six months and heard a rumor that a midwifery clinic was going to open up. And I went for it. Mm. I thought, if I do this, then maybe I can get into midwifery school. By then I was a single mom and my daughter was six years old. So I couldn't quite go to school yet. The timing wasn't right, but it came to me um, the Kentucky program, CNAP program, was community-based, and I had a lot of midwives supporting me. So I did that program, and I came out in 96 as a certified nurse midwife, and my journey started there. I worked at the clinic, and then I opened my own practice with another midwife, and we had a very successful Della Vida practice for six years. This is such an interesting thing to me because number one, we were in the same area of San Francisco about the same time. And then number two, that is where I thought I was going to go was the CNAP program. Uh -huh. But I had done my undergraduate degree without ever stepping foot on the campus that I graduated from. And I thought that if I did that, I would never in all of my formal preparation have been on campus, and it might not be the same caliber of experience. It boggles my mind that we could have been classmates. Yes. It boggles my mind that I could have met you right there in the Bay Area. It's, you know, I'm delighted that I'm meeting you now. Yes. But uh, the ability of that community-based midwifery program to be able to see yourself as a community midwife and to be able to give you the training to prepare you to do that was a different type of orientation than it was at the university. So I this think is I true. benefited from that. Yeah, this is anyway. true. It, um, the program I could modify enough that I could be, I was a single mom, mm -hmm. I had to work, mm -hmm. um, I was on scholarship. I had a BA in, in psychology, not a BSN, but they took me and I got my master's through them at Case Western and MSN mm -hmm. through Case Western. And um, at that time, Washington changed their law that midwives, certified nurse midwives needed a master's to be able to license. So it's just like it fell into place. Yeah. Everything in my life, whether I liked it or not, has fallen in the right place. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. with what you're telling me, the parallel 
Yeah. Um, I met at the clinic that I had joined. The midwife that was in charge of it had lived 90 miles from me in South Carolina, <laughs> went to Charleston for her midwifery, went to the same AD program I did. Yeah. We cross, We could have crossed paths like yeah. that. Yeah. And then one of the midwives she hired was in San Francisco the same time I was and had gone through their midwifery program. I never knew her either. So it's it's divine intervention. <laughs> I was just going to say the beauty of it all is that yeah. there is that there is a plan that there is there is a, a intention. Yeah. to bring these to bring People, powerful women together <laughs> to create maybe the not that it, to happen. <laughs> sometimes but at the right time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it could, you know, we almost met that. Many. Could have been any time, but and, it was at the right time. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm well known in the community to have retired a number of times. <laughs> I, I retired from the clinic I worked at with Peace Health. And in 2009, then I went to an OB practice and worked with physicians and that worked out okay, but I met, I, I actually already knew another midwife that worked with me there. I had hired her for the clinic, and when we closed the clinic, um, she and I went to work for the OB. Well, we decided after two years that we were going to open, long and short of it, we were going to open our own practice. Mm -hmm. And that I had wanted to do, but always feared it because I had worked for the man <laughs> for years and got a paycheck. So right. I was a little fearful of that. But she was a great accountant as well as a fabulous midwife. And we clicked. We were real different. Yeah. We had different um, likes and dislikes. And, and our practice was the same, though. We wanted the same thing for women. Mm -hmm. And that's what made us success. Mm -hmm. And we successfully had that practice for six years. And then I retired. Again. <laughs> in 2017. <laughs> yeah. Someone came, a lady that has had finished at Bastyr, was opening her home, home birth, birth practice, Naomi O'Callaghan, came to buy some stuff from us. And we met. And we hit it off right away. And we had similar things happen, um, parallel things happen. Yes. But she asked me to help her with the practice. Because when you do your own practice, you learn to do the insurance information and insurance mm -hmm. billing and credentialing. So I took that to her practice and decided I wasn't quite retired. <laughs> and help, attended births with her and became a preceptor for Bastyr for those times and met. I was very impressed with their program and very impressed with the home birth that Naomi was doing at the time um, and still does, still has her practice. Um, she's very, uh, they're very safe when they come out of Bastyr. They learn a lot. So um, I'm impressed. Yeah. with the master's program they have. So I did that, and then the last year I decided I'm probably done, health issues and just timing, that I was done. So um, I let my license go to retired for the first time, mm. and that was during COVID. So it didn't hit me until we started relaxing a little bit that I wasn't going anywhere <laughs> and I wasn't doing anything so I had to regroup and the thing is that you know you're up all the time as a midwife during the night and I thought oh it'd be so nice to retire and not be up well I choose to be up now I guess that's a different <laughs> I'm a night owl because kind of also in my nursing career I did a lot of nights mm -hmm. to avoid all the politics on day shift yeah. so yeah. I'm used to being up at night 
So I wandered the house at night. (laughs) But during the time, another thing that happened for me, which is parallel with you, is that I met um, Robert Newman and Anna Humphreys at a meditation workshop that I attended to teach meditation, which gets back to the basis of fear in pregnant women and birthing women and families. And I wanted to address that fear and try to give it space to come out and be present and talked about. So I attended their meditation, the Calm Birth um, workshop to teach Calm Birth. And that has made a meditation in itself had made a very important, had a very important place in my life. It changed my life. And um, so visualization, relaxation, progressive relaxation, and meditation were in my practice that I used to. And I used it in subtle ways, but it it was successful in doing that. It makes a tremendous difference. And as you bring it up, it is something that we talked about because that is one of the things that is so prevalent in the way that society views birth yeah, and displays birth and discusses birth. It's mm-hmm. all from this emergency, fearful stance mm-hmm. of things that would go wrong. Right. And that is unattainable. Yeah. Because people don't get to see everything that can go right and does go right. Yeah. All a lot of the time. It's not a hundred percent of the time that everything goes right, but it's far less prominent that things are not doing well than is displayed in our society. Right. Right. And I can't say that birth is going to be a perfect experience of what a person wants, um, but it can be a fulfilling experience. And that's what I felt my job was, is to open the door to opportunities. You can create what you want as a birth, and then there's a power that takes over. We aren't in charge. Um, Mom isn't in charge. Dad isn't in, nobody's in charge. The baby's not in charge either. Baby's not in charge either. <laughs> but we can all work, work together. together. Yes. And we can face the experience mm-hmm. with an openness and come out satisfied with what we got. Mm-hmm. It may not be the perfect birth, but it was safe and it can be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. I would say the part of fear being at the central vision to me is that the other aspect of it is that women haven't been given information. Families do not have access to the full disclosure. They don't have all of the information. And you can't actually make an informed choice if you don't have that information. And if you have only one bias, only like, like say someone goes when they're pregnant and they go to an office and it could be an office of a midwife or a doctor, yeah. no distinction made here, but they could be said, this is what you do and this is when you do exactly. it. Exactly. Without even saying, right. why would we suggest this? What, are, what do we know about it? What do we not know about it? And we used to call that cookie cutter. Good, good, good term. Cookie cutter. And both Alina and I said, would always say to people, we aren't going to cookie cut this. You are an individual and we're going to give you all the research. We're going to give you the, the data or show you where to get it. And then you make your decision. If it's as small as blood work. I had a, I had a client one time that had horrible fear of needles and she would perspire and turn pale if I talked about it. So I offered, I said, let's go through what we would do in a blood panel and see if we needed all of that. Mm -hmm. 
And we did each piece and I could get her blood type and I, we went through it and I felt comfortable with her saying no. And she said no. Well, her mother decided she didn't need to go to a midwife. She needed to go to an OBGYN office. And um, so she went at her mother's request, took her friend, and the first thing the nurse said was, we're going to draw blood on you. Not, this is available, we're going to draw blood on you. And you won't be able to see the doctor unless you get it done. And she started crying, and it just went downhill from there. So her friend took her out of there and said, we're going back to the midwives that you had. We aren't staying here, no matter what your mother said. And she said, yeah. So we went through it, and as it turned out, when she went into the hospital, she had to have the blood drawn. And we were not doing home births at, at that time. So she went into the hospital. I found a nurse anesthetist that was a was a hypnotherapist. That's and funny. she accepted hypnotherapy to have her blood drawn and she had it drawn. And it was her decision is what it comes down to. And Alina and I really, we had thought about opening a home practice, but chose not to because we felt there was a need in the hospital. There was a, a void there of people that were respectful of rights and respectful of women's choices. And so we thought we would open that up. And we had a very successful water birth experience. They, they, they had yeah. it in the hospital? They, they had it at the hospital. They were open to it, but not without our input into it. <laughs> without making and, it happen, yes. Yeah, so, so. and both Alina and I, very, very happy mm -hmm. with the practice at the hospital. Did they do they still do water births there? They do. They, they do. Good. And there are midwives at clinics that come and do water births. Okay. Um, the thing that we found out was when we decided to close our practice, there were a number of midwives in the community then. So we thought we'd be okay with that. Well what happened there was a void again, and it was the transition of home birth to hospital birth. Mm -hmm. When there was a need for transport, mm -hmm. then Alina and I used to take those mm -hmm. and used to honor the um, quiet privateness of the birth as close to home as we could get. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but we had a very quiet, low light, very calm experience where someone had rights. Yes. And we could talk about the next step. And that was part of making that experience fulfilling. They, hopefully they would leave there saying everything was done. And even though I had to have a C-section say, I feel comfortable with all the choices. And that was the end result. And not being traumatized. And not and being not traumatized. Being honored in, in the values and the wishes that they had. Yeah. And th that was, you saw that, as you said, as you had to hold that sacred space right. for women to have those right. opportunities. And that was gone then. Mm. So when. When you stopped. When, when you, I stopped. Okay. So when I started working for, with Naomi, that's when I saw that that was true. That, that piece was missing. And um, that, that was a sad revelation there. But since then, they've, they've introduced, the whole state has introduced um, Smooth Transitions, yes. which is a program that is going to help that. And I'm very Seattle. happy. Yeah. <laughs> that was initiated yeah. in Seattle. And I'm yeah. very happy that that's here. Oh, that's so essential. And that is one of the pieces that if we were to able be able to address the seeing 
seeing it all as serving the families and their choices, right? then we would have less territorial issues that divide rather yeah. than unite. Um, it means letting go of ego. <laughs> wow, and isn't that a pursuit? That, I am uh, hot in that pursuit. but <laughs> Yeah, and I've been pursuing that in myself for yeah. years. Yeah. 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 But it is uh, nonetheless very worthwhile for people to acknowledge that they have power and yeah. that they have a right to their choices. Yeah. And I have seen people advocate for their own ability to do things, even when there was a system that would not necessarily accommodate that, but they yes. could navigate it. Right. And the one feeling of being powerless is the one thing that I would like to see stripped away from Absolutely. People. Absolutely. And I think we were successful at doing that in our practice. So I'm, you know, I look back on my life and my journey as one musician put it, the long and winding road. And <laughs> I always had a kinship to that song. But my journey was that way. I've been so many places done. I mean, I could bend your ear for hours about my life. Someone told me to write a book one time. but um, Well, now you have time. Now I have time. <laughs> but the experience was was what I needed. Yeah. It may be, be not what I thought was going to happen, but the truth be known, in 1963, I thought I would get married and and be barefoot and pregnant all my life and live on a farm in a commune <laughs> and that was independent thinking in the south oh, yeah. <laughs> for Very. sure yeah. so i always thought oh i would love to go to the farm but yeah. that didn't happen yeah. um and i had a friend that worked there yeah but that didn't happen for me mm -hmm. and that's fine and yet you kind of live communally here <laughs> i do <laughs> Uh, Multi-generational. Exactly. And I live I with that... my daughter, son-in-law, his dad, his brother, <laughs> and me, and two toddlers. And, the, so, and, the, and, and a dog. one dog. And two and cats. cats. <laughs> yeah. So we do have kind of a communal thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I would have had more children, but I love the one I had. Do you have any idea how many hands how many babies you've helped with over on the other side of a thousand yeah or more yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um so many lives and of course so some lives. of them were moms that you already families you already knew that you would be doing some another of them were, and with. some of them i see in town you know and yeah and they remember yeah. me yeah. i had opportunity before i retired of helping a very young couple, 19-year-old. And um, I went in the room the next day after the birth, and the father said, you know, my mom told me you delivered me. And I thought, <laughs> oh, gosh, I just aged 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it is. The, the, the life of a midwife is not an easy choice, but it is ever so fulfilling. It is. And it, I've always referred to it as a calling. Yes. If it isn't if it isn't thought of as a sacred kind of a mantle, it's pretty undoable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have to um it is a hard life. Mm -hmm. And you have to make that decision about how you want to support women. There are lots of different ways to support birth. Yeah. But that was my chosen way, and I am definitely proud of the 22 years that I've put in it. I didn't think when I graduated, I went to school at 48. I tend to do things. 38, I had a baby. 48. <laughs> right on the decades. Huh? Right on the decades. Um, and I went to school and thought, well, I've got a couple of years <laughs> that I can put into midwifery. 
<laughs> Never did I think it would be 22 years. That's so lovely. I don't know what I was thinking, but, hmm. you know, hmm. maybe I wouldn't make it to 70. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am, 76, are. and I made it. <laughs> so wonderful, so beautiful, and practicing beyond your 70s, so lovely. Yes. So uh, I, if, you, if you'd if you like to, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think is the best way to support today's culture and today's, you know, the art in, in this culture. What, what, is, what do you feel like is the best types of advice that you would like to get out there into people's ears? <laughs> well, I guess the first word that comes to mind is listen. Mm. And we're taught that in nursing. And that may be a little bit, a little part of why we're successful <laughs> is because we're taught listening, which I'm not so sure they teach in medical school. It's doing, <laughs> not listening. But there are, you know, and we can't do this without physicians because they're part of our team too. So I think to help women, I think we need to um, humanize and create a gentle approach to childbirth, even in medical school. I think there's got to be souls there that OBGYNs. We were, both Alina and I were very blessed with having um, a physician backup that understood us. And when we had to refer to him, he was listening and he was open to our ladies and our families. And he was inclusive. So... I think that we need to listen to the women of today. I can't begin to know how the culture has changed. And I have to be open to, okay, I may not understand this, especially with the newer generation, but I need to learn about it myself. I need to know how to open myself up to all different types of people and um, not be judgmental that's about anybody. And that's huge. It is huge. That's huge because huge. you've got some innate stuff. You've got some stuff that were learned that you learn very young. And I know this from living in the South, mm -hmm. that there are prejudices and biases. And... You've got to open. I don't think I've ever been in any way prejudiced or biased. And I've been open, which has been a good, that's my angel that's looking over me, is telling me all the time to um, take a breath, step back, and see what's happening, and open the scope, and open the lens, and take it in and um, honor everybody's need. And I bring to this all the information about safety, all the information that will help people get through birth, and I lay it on the table for them. And then I assist them in making decisions. Mm -hmm. sure, decision I'm always making. in the back seat. Mm -hmm. I'm the backseat driver, as you may say. <laughs> but I'm there for them. And um, I think that we have to be inclusive of families that are different mm -hmm. than what we were brought up to believe a family was. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And I, I was excited to help um, same-sex couples Mm -hmm. create their family. I was, you know, I'm open to uh, surrogacy. Mm -hmm. We've had that in our practice, mm -hmm. and that was a very special experience, too. 
So, yeah, there's all new stuff coming out all the time. But I can tell you the the one thread that continues to go is to address fear and to be relaxed and listen to your intuition and your inner voice. Now they're finding that there's brain tissue in the gut. So, you know, I've known that somewhere. I've known that, Mm -hmm. that I'm thinking with my gut Mm -hmm. a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But if your head, your heart, and your gut are on the same thing, you're okay. You're You're going to be good. That's a choice that is going to fit. The, The need for each of us to take accountability for making choices is is one that's also important. It's also an important tenet of it. I mean, in that recognition, yeah. like you said, a midwife is not the show. Well, I like to say, you know, I would think of it more like you're working with the energies around it, the surrounding yeah. the room and making sure exactly. that this person is supported in their work. Yeah. So that that is really I am on that page for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow, well, goodness. And it's come to me. I haven't been able to articulate this throughout the years, but um you know that guardian angel that I have and there's probably more than one. But <laughs> I needed that. <laughs> but um I've always found that I come back to that one thing that you've got all the information inside you that you need. And um, that's where you need to come from. Not from all the media, not from what people are doing today, but the information that that comes from generations. I mean, we've got cells in our body from our grand our great grands, yeah. Our great great grands <laughs> from all the way back. So, mm-hmm. yes, I am a believer that some women, you know, the luggage that we bring, mm-hmm. um, have packed away generations of fear and generations of um, and not being accepted, right. right? And being subservient. Yeah. And I think that those messages are back there to remind us that we don't have to be that way, Mm. that we are a new generation. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And um, we just have to, I just have to sit back. Sometimes I don't like change, but I always know that it can't get worse at the moment. (laughs) So change must bring some better stuff mm-hmm. or different. I need to open up a little more. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an opportunity. I love that. Um, long ago, I saw that explanation of chaos, mm-hmm. of crisis being opportunity. The Chinese lettering for it is opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> that's what the word so, is. That's what. Yeah. The, yeah, and I think is. that is so true. It is so true. That is so so true, and I've always been a believer of that. I just saw a this one struck me because it said, "When you read something that is that resonates for you, uh-huh. consider that you're not hearing it the first time, but it resonates because it's within you that knowledge inside, and that that is I very love good. That yeah, and, and what I always am mindful of too is that you have both a mom and a baby that are working together in this experience and that are in the experience of being bonded like that Mm -hmm. throughout and so it's not the way and I've shared it on this program before so my listeners might be tired of hearing it but I think it's so fascinating to me that it dawned on me not until my 40s that I was pondering on the fact that when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was interested in astrology, so much so that I got my chart done. (laughs) And then after that, kind of like nothing. Well, in my 40s, it was like, who's your astrologer? 
It's my daughter. And I went, did you bring that to her or did she bring that to you? Yeah. And I really believe that she brought that to me. I don't know. We don't know these things. Yeah. But it's not blank slate. It's two people, and it's really a powerful time. And it's a really an important time to have that connecting and to do right. that with your meditation and with those, yeah. even the positive visualization and really getting to commune connect with and connect. Is with so, baby energy. Yeah. It's so important. It's so important. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think that's what drew me to um, Calm Birth was yes. that the meditations that they have, they have three basic ones, and they've been changed over the years, but they basically connect you and your partner. Right, right. I'm not to trying to baby. leave anybody else yeah. out. You know, but, yeah, yeah. And they connect yes. you to the baby yes. and to the energy there and yes. to the center, which mm -hmm. is where it all comes from. Mm. Well, are there things that you have on your mind that you would really like to share that we haven't opened up yet or cracked the cracked the lid on? <laughs> Boy, I can't. I think I've done a pretty thorough job. I, I hope it's been interesting. <laughs> oh, I, I really would like to absolutely confirm that it's quite yeah. interesting and that yeah. you have so much to say. And like you said, you can bend our ears and you can take us on journeys. Much beyond this brief little period of time, <laughs> yes. I'm sure. I can't think of, I know that through my life there have been readings and and mentors for me. Um, and my life did indeed change when I moved to San Francisco mm -hmm. and started doing inner work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't trust myself. I was not, I didn't feel the power that I had up until then. Um, I didn't know if I was on the right path. And it wasn't until I learned to do visualization and learned to create a safe place in my head that I was able to open up and say, yes, I'm here and I'm open. Mm to my journey, mm -hmm. um, wherever it takes me. And sometimes it was sad. Sometimes it was challenging. Uh, sometimes I made the wrong move because I was not working with my inner self. I was working with my head mm -hmm. and my ego. Mm -hmm. And um, I just learned from that. Too. You know, I make mistakes and I learn from it. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I've been listening lately, re-listening to A New Earth with Eckhart Tolle. Oh, yes. Tolle. And in this talking about your real self and how you still have, ego never goes away. Yeah. Um, but you get to just see it for what it is. Emotions. I've spent a lot of time yes. being overly sensitized, or I felt like I was overly sensitized. Not sensitized, but get. I'm, I was born in July, and so here's that little bit of astrology, everybody. Uh -huh. We're super sensitive. We have a crab as our, we have this shell that's on the outside yeah. because we're so soft in the middle. But anyway, emotions are something that I would tune out of rather than tune into. Yeah. And I don't I don't have a trouble smashing things down. You know. I mean, you see on my face whether yeah. I'm happy or whether I'm sad. I've always been the great trash compactor. Oh, <laughs> yes. You have to. Yes. I tend to eat my emotions. Yes. And not express them. And it's taking years and I'm still working on that and probably will be to the day I die is to open up and speak my truth mm. because I was always taught to be seen and not heard. Oh, yeah. And that always in the old days when I was younger, it was um, 
that women didn't have anything to say. Right. That was the feeling I got. People wouldn't say that, but that was the feeling I well, got. Yeah, you're... yeah I, I myself, and I'm glad, recognizing long history right. of DNA. Right. However, there's always an opportunity and to look at things with that attitude of there's, there's a solution. There's a solution yeah. for these yeah. things. And, let's and you have to um, reassure yourself of that all the time, <laughs> or I do. I have to um, come back to that spot, and it's all taking a breath. And I, can, I have been able to successfully identify. When I was younger, I was on a medication for tension headaches from high school on. And I was not without that medicine. The minute I started to get a tension headache, I took that medicine. And then I wouldn't get the photophobia and the nausea. It was kind of, it wasn't a migraine, it was tension. And um, then I started recognizing that through therapy, mm -hmm. group therapy, of honoring my body, however it looked and however it was. And one of the things I learned was that the headache started from muscles tensing up around my neck. Mm -hmm. And that's where I carried my pain. Mm -hmm. And that's where I carried my emotion. Mm -hmm. And by identifying when that would happen and start doing breathing, and I learned that I didn't need the medicine. And that was the last time I took any medicine for that. Mm -hmm. um, and having rheumatoid arthritis now, it's helped me tremendously to open up and more or less embrace the pain, mm -hmm. accept that that's what's happening and breathe through it. And that's childbirth too, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's pain in childbirth. Yes, there is. It's not painless childbirth. <laughs> I always thought that um, Lamaze. Well, because they they taught the breathing to. Yes. I don't know if that I was, was actually painless, but yeah. Yeah, and I wasn't impressed with that. Mm. Not as much as the world was at the time. Well, for me, but, it was always hard work. I I birthed. It's hard times. work. It's hard work, but it wasn't that it was filled with pain and agony. It was no. hard work. There's a difference between. Yes embracing the pain and suffering mm -hmm. and that was a hard distinction for me and it is from time to time time to time i get into my pain and i get very emotional about it and get drawn in and let it define me the pain body the pain, <laughs> the pain. and then all of a sudden my inner self is say hey cut it out and I take a deep breath, I let my body relax, and amazingly, the sharpness of the pain and the suffering goes away. And I have to make that choice every single minute of the day to do it or not do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it it um, serves me and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it's a choice you make every single day. And I think that I read a lot and followed um, Dr. Wayne Dyer yes. mm -hmm. for a lot of, from the very beginning mm -hmm. of his book. I thought that that was, that he was an amazing person. Mm -hmm. And he helped me a lot. Some of his, mm -hmm. his uh, talks and his speeches He's helped me a lot. He's a very important messenger, I think. Yeah, I think he was. Mm -hmm. And I didn't agree with some of the things, but mm -hmm. the majority of it did help me. So mm -hmm. I used to listen to his CDs in the car. Mm -hmm. When I would drive anywhere, I would listen to his CDs and play them over and over again. Finding the things that bring you light and bring you inspiration. And like you said, you have your angels, you have that connection, that intuition. Yeah. You know, and we all have it. I don't want anybody out there thinking, oh, yeah, they have something. No, we all have it. Yeah. It's present within the, each and every one of us. And taking the time to notice what stands out to you, what, yeah. what lights you up, right. what, what is that little thing that is like, ooh, 
this is something I really want to yeah. hear. Because those are the ways that you grow and develop that ability to be totally yourself, you know, and yeah. be true. And I found that that was one of the most challenging things in my practice was to be able to tap into um, my client and find that place where they can become open mm -hmm. and not be defined by their fear. Yeah. And wherever it is, if they're Wiccan, whatever motivates them is a Wiccan. Whatever their belief system is. Whatever their belief system, mm -hmm. Christian, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like I did enough research to understand um, some of their places I could never totally understand. Or relate. Or relate to every single person. But I could be in my place and open up to what they had to offer. Mm -hmm. And maybe even learn a little bit. Mm -hmm. you know, as we go. But the two things, breathing and music. Music, I haven't said enough about, but oh. I am a dancer. Oh, I <laughs> And love that. I danced at birth oh. all the time. And I would get women doing belly dancing and um, enjoying movement in their bodies because I think that that's another thing that doesn't happen that has led us to sitting at a desk and not getting in touch with our body movements. So I played a lot of music and I got women moving their hips and had little little things, little special things I would tell them. Birth twerking was one of them. <laughs> and, and that's the way you move your hips to um, facilitate birthing babies, and you'd have to see it to know. And I have always wanted to include some form of prenatal belly dancing. And I would, I would um, link my clients to that on YouTube. There's, <laughs> there's plenty of belly dancing pregnant women, and I love seeing I love seeing the belly dancers who are pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Do their little routines. But yeah, I took belly dancing as a art farm one time, a workshop in it, and just thought, this is what we need. This is what we need to move our bodies because we're so rigid in our bodies mm -hmm. and our hips. Mm -hmm. And we have to move our hips. Mm -hmm. So yeah, music was a real important part of birthing for me. Yeah. And then if someone didn't want music, they didn't have That's to have okay. it. Right. But they still needed to move their hips. <laughs> <laughs> and I would get them out of the water, especially if they were kind of in a stalemate yes. with the baby. Mm -hmm. And I would get them out of the water and get them to move their hips and rotate their hips and yeah, do the birth so twerking. Things. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I'm so <laughs> glad that, that you've mentioned that. We have unbelievably come to the end of our time for an yes. hour to fill an hour. Okay. Thank you so much. I so I've enjoyed you. this. And I've enjoyed having you. And I'm so happy to meet you, Roxanne. And I'm so happy to meet you, Betsy. another episode of Midwife After Hours. I am your host, Roxanne Spring. Another great thank you out to Betsy Smith for this show and to my producer, Terry Spring, the love of my life. Next week, we have another great treat for you, a local person who has a wonderful blog called The Duval Homestead. 
She is going to share all about being a mom and a blogger, a natural living enthusiast. I can't wait to have this meeting get out on the air to all of you. Drop me a line. Let me know what you're enjoying. And have a great rest of your weekend. Bye for now.